Let us pray together. Our Lord, the mark of the true believer is that he always yearns to learn more of Jesus, that he delights in contemplation of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This is what we've come to do today, our Father. So set our minds and hearts on him whom you love, him who is your delight and has been your delight through all eternity. Teach us to delight in him, to relish his name, to adore his limitless excellence. Teach us of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, in this series of basic doctrines revisited, uh, we've been studying the magnificent person of Christ. We'll do a few in our Matthew series, three or four perhaps, and then we'll dip back into this series of basic biblical truths revisited. So we've been looking at the person of Jesus. And, and first we looked at the testimony of Old and New Testament alike that Jesus is fully God. And then we saw the testimony of Scripture that he took on a fully human nature, that he genuinely became man. He was the God-man. Two natures in one person. As to his manhood, fully human. No mixture, no blurring, not part God or part man, but fully human. As to his divine nature, fully God. Not a mixture, not a blur, not an amalgamation, but pure deity. Pure deity, pure humanity, eternally joined in one eye, one person, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Micah 5.2 tells us of Christ, we hear this often around Christmas time, his goings forth are from everlasting, from ancient days. So this tells us that Jesus' birth in Bethlehem was not the beginning of his career. Before he was born in Bethlehem, he had an eternal career. His goings forth were of everlasting, from ancient days. So we're asking today and answering just the very beginning of an answer to the question, what was God the Son doing through the limitless ages of eternity? And what was God the Son doing from the earliest days of the beginning of our universe? This is what we look at today. Uh, This is the first of uh, at least two parts looking at the past and the present and the future works of Jesus Christ. So today we're going to learn of Jesus' past doings. And what we learn will just uh, deepen our love for him and increase our reverence for him, our admiration and our, our worship of him. So let's cast our minds back first, Roman numeral one, to timeless times. And that is a, a deliberate clash of concepts to timeless times, which is to say eternity. So looking at what the Son was doing in the eternity, we find that he was begotten of the Father. B-E-G-O-T-T-E-N. He was begotten of the Father. And we'll look at two aspects of that that Scripture teaches us. He was begotten of the Father, first of all, eternally. That is number one in your outline. He was eternally begotten by the Father. And we see this in Hebrews 1, verses 4 and 5, which uh, tells us of this uh, truth of Christ. Hebrews 1, verses 4 and 5, the uh, writer talking about Christ says, Christ having become so much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. 
and that is the name Son. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Now this today, I believe that the writer speaks of here, is an eternal today. It's not a particular day. It's an eternal day. Now, we need to remind ourselves that God is timeless. And having said that, I really have said about all we can say Because we are of time, and all our thoughts are of time. And you'll notice, if you think about it, that everything that I say or anybody says to talk about timeless time, it's all time words. (laughs) I mean, what, what can I talk about? I'll say that this was the time before time. Oh, but that's a time word. What's the time before time? So this is a time when no time existed. And the harder we try to think of it, the more our minds threaten to blow up on us because we're, we're not just uh, used to time. We're bound into time. We can't think of any other way than a succession of moments. We can't think of any other way but past, present, and future. Those are our terms. That's the air we breathe intellectually. But God is not bound to time. Time is something God created. There was no time till God created time. And time is not his native country. God has always existed in an eternal now. So you have to say that to God it's always today. Except that's a time word. It's just the best we can do. Let me just say this a bit further. All of our language about God, although it's true, is analogous. We don't, we don't speak of God as God speaks of God because we don't talk God. We don't speak God. A, a word of God would blow our brains apart. So as Calvin said, He bends down and he lisps to us as we do when we're speaking to a two-year-old. This is what God has to do when he speaks to us about himself. He has to speak to us in terms that his creatures can understand. But all of these analogies, if you try to press them too far, they're going to break apart because they are just analogies. They're true as he sets them forth, and they are true as far as they're meant to go, but they only go so far. And that's very much the case here. To God, it's always now, by which I mean he doesn't have a succession of events in his experience. He's created time so he understands it. He knows about our time. He works in time because he's Lord of it but he's not bound to it. So when we read that God says, today I have begotten you, it's not meaning that there's a a little, you know, calendar in heaven with a little B circled and a J, you know, this is Jesus' birthday. We'll We'll have a party for him. Not as to his divine nature. There was no point of beginning as to Jesus' divine nature. Why? Because it's a divine nature. Because he's God. And God has no beginning. God has no end. So when he says, today I've begotten thee, this is a, 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 an eternal today. Um, we read that truth of Jesus if you drop your eyes down to verses 10 through 12. We began the service with, you, Lord, in the beginning founded the earth. This is Jesus. You founded the earth. And the heavens are the works of your hand. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment and like a mantle. You will roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. So that is the nature of Jesus as God. I, I say Jesus is man's name, but you know I mean the one person, the God, the God-man, God the Son. So in God's eternal order, 
He begat Jesus. Jesus is begotten of the Father. He is the Son begotten of the Father. So here's where we plug in what I just said a moment ago. All the begetting that we're familiar with, all of it has a point of beginning. So I'm begotten by Julian Ford Phillips. In 1954, there was no me. Sometime in 1955, probably around the start, since my birthday's in September, I was begotten and eventually born. That's because I'm a creature. And all creatures have a point of beginning. And we have a point when we die as well. And so naturally, when we, when we talk about the Son being begotten of the Father, we think, well, that means that there was a point that He began. No, it does not. Because now we're not talking about a creature. We're talking about the one being, the only being, who is in a category other than creation. So I remind you, you there, in, in all things that exist, there's only two categories. There are things that have been created which are finite and have a beginning and are dependent. And there are things that are uncreated, which are infinite and have no beginning. In this category is everything that's not in this category. And in this category, only God. You see? So, yes, I have to use a word from this category, begotten. But if I'm describing this category, this begetting has no beginning. You see? And so we're speaking of the Father uh, communicating to the Son all that it means to be God, the full nature of God. And this is an eternal state. This is something that has always been the case. It's a description of their relationship, not of Christ's beginning. Because Christ already was in the beginning. You all know this verse, John 1.1. In the beginning, the Word began, right? Wait, did I get that wrong? How's that go? In the beginning was, already was. Now you run your eyes down to verse 6, and you do read a beginning word. There began to be a man named John. Oh, he had a beginning. Not the word. He was in the beginning with God. Eternally begotten by God. So this is not about when God the Son began to be, because he's eternal. It's about his eternal relationship with the Father. How long has the Father been the Father? Always. Can you be a father without having a child? No. Has, does he have a son? Yes, he does. The son. How long has he been the son? Forever. There's never not been a son. There's never not been the father. And the father's always been the father because the son has always been the son. The, their relationship is described by these and their person is described by this relationship. Because in every other way, they're simply identical to God. The Father is God, the Son is God. Everything you can say about God, you can say about the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, except that the Father is the Father of the Son. The Son is the Son of the Father. The Spirit is breathed out by the Father and the Son. We'll talk about Him another time, Lord willing. So um, this is a, a statement of their relationship and names Him as the Son. Now, there are other similar images um, if you think about them. I mean, you, you could just stay with John 1.1, couldn't you? What is Christ called in John 1.1? He's called... But, but what is a word but something that's spoken? Well, who spoke Him? The Father spoke the Word. When did He speak Him? Eternally. There's no point before, no point after. The Son is the Word of the Father. 
He comes from the mind and heart of the Father. I say comes from, makes you think that there was a point when that happened. No. <laughs> it's, it's eternally the case. It's a state of their relation. It's a statement of their relationship, not of a progression of events. And now this, uh, at this point, if you're a Far Side fan, you might be thinking of one of my favorite par- Far Side cartoons. It's, it's in a college classroom, and there's a bunch of students sitting there, and there's one student sitting with his hand up, and he's unlike the others because he's got this tiny little head about this big. And he says, Professor Jenkins, can I be excused? My brain is full. <laughs> so you may be feeling that. Well, that's appropriate. We should be. If, if we think of God in a way that we feel like we've got a handle on it, we're doing it wrong. <laughs> we're doing it wrong. So he's the word of the Father. Uh, what does Hebrews 1 say? He's the radiance of the Father's glory. Well, when did he start being the radiance of the Father's glory? I'll answer that by a question. When did the Father start being glorious? (laughs) He never started being glorious. He is by nature glorious. And by nature, the Son is always the radiance of the Father's glory. Uh, He's the exact imprint of the Father's nature. When did that happen? Well, when did the Father start having a nature? He always has. And the Son's always been the exact imprint. And we could go on and on with similar uh, statements of their relationship to each other. But, But this is what the Son is. He is who He is by His relationship to the Father. He is eternally begotten. Not just that, but number two, He is also only begotten. And the Greek word there is monogenes. He is only begotten. Now you know a number of verses. We just read a couple of them. John 1.18, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Then John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God. Now, there's something that you cannot understand unless you remind yourself that there's no beginning to this begetting. It's an eternal begetting. God cannot be begotten in a point in time or it's not God. Anything that has a beginning isn't God. So this is an eternal truth of Christ. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. And then John 3.16, we all know that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So now I I have to tell you, uh, for many years in recent decades, the majority of scholars have, have looked at this Greek word monogenes and they've said, well, it doesn't really mean only begotten. It means only of a kind. It means one of a kind. And there have been good reasons for that, but it really has only rested on one scholar's article and uh, uh, what had a very small beginning. Now, now scholars have looked afresh at it, and the tide is turning, and many are reconsidering, and I'm one who's reconsidering. I've long said, and you've heard me say, that it means one of a kind, which is true as far as it goes, but there's more to it than that. I be, I'm becoming persuaded that the word does actually mean only begotten. And so only begotten, his eternal begetting means that he's always been of the Father. His only begottenness means He's the only one who is such begotten. Now we read in John 1.12 that as many as receive Christ, to them He gives the right to what? To become children of God. So does that mean that they become God? Well, I remind you of just three minutes ago, if it has a beginning, it's not God. 
We don't become God. That's not doable. (laughs) We are uh, adopted into the family of God. We're adopted, finite, created, redeemed children. But the Son is eternal, and He alone has communicated the whole nature of God to Him. He alone has the fullness of deity as to His person, as to His nature, I should say, as to His nature. Pardon me. So he is eternally begotten, and he's only begotten. So early in the history of the church, early in the history of the church, there was much controversy over the Trinity and over uh, ideas uh, related to the nature of Christ. And the best Bible scholars of the time and the best biblical thinkers of the time got together and put together the Nicene Creed, which says very well. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, not similar substance, but the same substance, one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. So there's one eternal truth. This is what's what Christ was doing, if you will, before there was time. He was being the begotten of the Father, the eternally begotten of the Father, the only begotten of the Father. What's another thing we, we learn from Scripture about uh, Christ uh, before creation, before time? He was face to face with the Father, letter B. He was face to face with the Father. And we see that in John 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, I I call your attention to this prepositional phrase that the Word was with God. Now, there are various ways of saying with in Greek, and the particular nuance of this word, pros, is that he was face to face with God that he was, he was facing God. Uh, the preposition pros, you can hear it in the word prosopon, which means face. That he was facing God. Uh, they were in intimate relationship to each other, it says. Uh, there's a motion towards. It, it bespeaks an intimacy between the two. They were not two lone rangers going off and doing their own things. They were in an eternal relationship of the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for the Father in intimate relationship with each other. So you read that and you realize, oh, that puts a lot of light on why Genesis 1, yes, Genesis 1, 26, God says, let us create man in our image. The Father speaking to the Son in the presence of the Holy Spirit, who's already been mentioned in verse 2. So, face to face with God. Uh, this picture is understood in John 1.18, which we just read. I'll read again to you. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Now that expression, obviously, is what I want us to think about together. In the bosom of the Father. Or you could a little more idiomatically say in the lap of the Father. And that's the idea of it. Uh, We see that literally in John 13 in the Last Supper where John's describing himself as the one that the Lord loved. And what's his position on the Last Supper? Where is he? How does he describe his sitting arrangement? John 13, 23 says, There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So there's the picture of the Apostle John leaning back 
on Christ's chest because he was particularly close to Christ. And so the, the only begotten God, well, uh, it's expressed in a timeless way. Uh, John doesn't say he was in the bosom of the Father or will be in the bosom of the Father. He uses a present active participle. So this is just an ongoing state. So where was Christ uh, if there were a billion years, a billion years ago? He was in the bosom of the Father. How about 25 years ago? In the bosom of the Father. How about a billion years from now? He'll be in the bosom of the Father. That's the relationship of the Son to the Father. A relationship of the greatest intimacy. One grammarian says that the idea is of this preposition is uh, that he's facing, that he's uh, that he is directed toward the Father, the bosom of the Father. So John sees this as important, and he wants us to get this. How do I know that? Because he says it twice. He was with God. In the beginning, he was with God. That's not something that happened later. It's not something that ever stopped happening. It's something that's always been true. He's always been in the bosom of the Father. So, eternally begotten and the only begotten, he is in the bo- he's face-to-face with God. A third eternal truth about Christ is he was being loved by the Father. John 17, 24. Turn there with me. I'm asking you to turn there. I hope that you're saying, yep, and doing it. John 17. Now look at verse 24. I remind you, uh, this is the actual Lord's Prayer, because the Lord prayed this, unlike what we call the Lord's Prayer, which is when we pray that He didn't pray. And in this Lord's Prayer, that Christ actually does some reminiscing about the eternal days. Well, there I go again, eternal days. Well, let's say eternal time. Oh, there I go again, eternal time. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> John 17, 24, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you've given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So before the first second ticked anywhere, the Father was loving the Son. That's the relationship of Father and Son. It's the relationship of love. It takes our minds back again to that unimaginable time before time. Through all eternity, before creation, that the Father was loving the Son. Now, think about this, though. This is something that religions can't say with integrity that believe that God is only one person. If you believe God is only one person, how can you say God is love? Before there were other persons, whom did God love? Well, Scripture teaches us that there have always been three persons. And so it is meaningful to say God is love because the Father has always loved the Son. And it is meaningful to say God is love. And doesn't this give all the more meaning before the cross? Long before you and I came along with our horrible self-caused problems and sins, the Father was loving the Son. And, when, and, and seeing His image reflected in the Son, and seeing the Son as the very Word He spoke, and seeing the Son as the radiation of His own glory. So when Scripture says that 
God did not withhold his only son, but gave him up for us all. And you see what a magnificent statement that is, that he gave his only begotten son. There was none dearer to him than Christ, and yet Christ was commissioned to take on human flesh for, for us and our salvation and come to the world to save sinners, he who was eternally loved by the Father. We know a fourth truth about the Son in eternity. He was sharing glory with the Father. I've asked you to turn to John 17 so you can look up at verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, what is glory? Well, glory is the radiance of, the, of God's splendor. That's what glory is. That's about the best I can do. It's the radiance of God's splendor. It is the brilliant shining of His perfect beauty. It, it is a, a magnificence that says, this is God like no other. He is alone in His splendor. He is alone in His glory, in his, the beauty of His holiness. And so here Jesus says He had that glory with the Father before the world was. They shared this glory as equals. Now this is something I was delight to share with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons who on the one hand say that there's only one person who is God, on the other that there are many gods. I show the passages in Isaiah in the 40s where God says, I don't share my glory with anybody. I will not give my glory to another. And yet here Jesus says, he shared God's glory with him. Why? How could he do that? Because father and son are of the same nature. Father and son are equally God. Jesus is every bit as God as the father is God. And so he shares with God the glory of God. He shares with the father the glory of the father. So uh, this was true before the world was. So these are eternal times, and we can now uh, breathe a little uh, uh, relaxing breath, breath <clears throat> pardon me, and turn our mind to the earliest times, Roman numeral two, the earliest times. And we're entering our world now, we're entering created uh, reality, our time-bound universe, and we'll start back at the very beginning of it, or <laughs> if I'll use another impossible phrase, the moments just before time started. <laughs> so this is just a few minutes before there were minutes, uh, uh, you could say. But the first thing that we see about the sun, well, the first thing we're looking at, I mean, this could be many, many sermons. We're just looking very quickly at this. The first thing we see about the sun is that he's commissioned to save. He's commissioned to save actually just before the world even was created. But this was with a view to the world with a view to creation. So, First uh, Peter 1.20 talks about this. I'd encourage you to take a look there. Why would we not? First Peter 1.20. Now, speaking of Christ, he says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but appeared in these last times for the sake of you. No, foreknown. So what does that mean? Just that, that God knew about him before the foundation of the world? How's that even worth saying? I mean, that, that is so, so trivial as to be silly and, and clearly not what he means, which helps us when we go back to understand verse 2. 
which teaches that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, people who don't like what the Bible teaches about God's sovereign election try to say, well, it's by foreknowledge, meaning that God didn't know who he was going to choose until he looked down to see who would choose him. And then when he, as he saw each people were going to choose him, he chose them back. So we make the first move, and then God responds to us by making his plans dictated by our actions. But neither of these verses is that what this means. We are foreknown, he says, not our actions. And when you look at the uses of that word, you see the word is used in the sense of foreordained or foreelected. It's used that way in Acts chapter 2, that all the Gentiles got together to do to Jesus what God's foreknowledge had decreed would happen, that he determined, he ordained would happen. Here he ordains us, but here in in verse uh, uh, 20 that we're focusing on, is Christ foreknown before the foundation of the world appeared in these last times for the sake of you. So what he's speaking there is how the Father commissioned Christ and foreordained that he would take on human flesh for us and for our salvation. That this was a plan made between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit before time even started ticking with a view to what God would do in his world. Matthew Henry says pretty well, he says, when prescience, foreknowledge, when prescience is ascribed to God, it implies more than bare prospect or speculation. It imports an act of the will, a resolution that the thing shall be. Acts 2.23, which I'll, I referred to, I'll read in just a moment. God did not only foreknow, but determine and decree that his son should die for man. And this decree was before the foundation of the world. And again, Acts 2.23 says, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. So he was commissioned before the world was to come and save sinners. John 17.4, if you were still there, you could see that, but just note it down, John 17.4. Jesus prays this, saying, I glorified you on the earth, having finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Ephesians 3.11 says that, that God has an eternal plan. He has a plan of the ages. And Jesus says here he's finishing the work that God gave him to do. When did God give him this work to do? He gave it to him in eternity with the prospect of this universe. What we just read about in 1 Peter 1.20. That God the Father gave this work to God the Son that he would be sent into the world. We read that often. He would come into the world. What does he say in the verse we just studied in Matthew? Uh, Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for the many. He came, he came in accord with the will of the Father. The Father sent him uh, and commissioned him. This was the plan of the Trinity for our world. The plan of redemption. So, the eternal plan of God which Christ came to accomplish. A number of scriptures refer to this and allude to it from one angle or another. Like in Ephesians 1 verses 3 and 4, where we read that God, before the foundation of the world, selected believers to be in Christ. He elected believers to be in Christ and foreordains them to adoption of sons through Christ. 
This is God's saving plan. Um, the plan of the ages. First Timothy 1.15, Paul says, it is a trustworthy saying and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost. He came on a mission of the Trinity. Came in accord with the will of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 20.28, 20, we just alluded to, He came to give His life a ransom for many. Why? Because as we saw in last week's sermon, this was how God would accomplish His electing plan of salvation. He gave these men to Christ to give eternal life to, and the way Christ would do this is by giving His life as a ransom for them, for the ones God gave Him, for the ones God foreknew Him and sent Him to save. So, He is commissioned to save from earliest times. Letter B, He is Creator. He is Creator. Colossians 1.16 says that. Please turn there. Colossians 1.16. It's a wonderful, wonderful section on the person and work of Christ. Colossians 1.16. The apostle says, For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things have been created through him and for him. Well, there's an awful lot there. But one thing we see very clearly is Christ is not created. He's not a creature. Remember, there's just two categories. There's things that are created and there's things that are uncreated. And what Paul tells us is Christ goes in this category. Not creature, but creator. All things. The Jehovah's Witness plays with this, and their version says all other things. You know what the word for other is in Greek here? I don't either, because there's no word for other in Greek. Paul, Paul doesn't say all other things. He just says all things. Everything, everything was created by Christ. Christ is the creator. Uh, Christ is on the only God side. Now, now this means that Christ is the one through whom all things were made. The one through whom the Father made all things. We saw that in John 1 through 3, didn't we? All things came into existence through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into existence which has come into existence. The Father creates all things through the Son. Son is creator of all things. So, th- think first of all, in paradoxical terms... What love this this is. What what a sacrifice for us. This means the Lord Jesus Christ in His divine nature, God the Son, created the material from which the whips were made that laid His back open. He created the first seed of that thorny plant that was thrust on His head as a crown of thorns. He created the metal from which the nails were made that transfixed him to the cross. He created the first seed that grew into the tree that was made into the cross from which he hung. He created the soil in which that cross was thrust. The side of the hill into which a tomb was dug dug, and the uh, stone that was rolled over the face of that. He created all these things. He was under no obligation to subject himself to any of these things. Why did he? Love. 
Paul says, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. This was the love of our Creator for us. And such majesty reflect too that Christ made you and me. He gave us our existence. How much of our lives did we spend in ignoring Him? How much of our lives do we still spend ignoring Him? Now that we've even named His name, but we are caught up in trivia and not in the worship and service of Christ. But in the years of our unbelief and rebellion, and yet He had created us. He was our Creator. Uh, this certainly points out to us we won't escape Him. We can ignore Him so long, but we'll ultimately face Him. He's our Creator. And he can't be twitted. He can't be mocked. He can't be escaped. He has always been creator. He was creator from the beginning. And letter C, he is the sustainer. You're in Colossians 1, I hope. Look at verse 17. <clears throat> Pardon me. Verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, I'd translate that, in him all things cohere the meaning of the word sunestekan is they all stand together in him. So, like I've said, when you were a kid, maybe you saw models of molecules and atoms, and you look at these little balls, and you wonder, everything's made out of those? What holds them together? How do you stack a bunch of balls <laughs> and have them hold together? Well, scientists have long wondered, what is it that holds things together? And here's the answer to what holds things together. It's not a what. It's a who. Christ holds all things together. Christ is why uh, the pew you're sitting on doesn't dissolve into vapor and you fall into the heart of the earth. He's holding it together. Thank you, Lord, for doing that. And the floor and the ground and us. He holds all things together. And reflect on what we just said, that same thing. All the time he was hanging on the cross, nailed to the cross, God the Son was holding those things together that they might perform that part of God's saving plan. And I just want to sneak in in the middle between those two verses. At the end of verse 16, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, it's not in your outline per se, but this is, this is uh, if you will, it's kind of the sum of those two realities. He created everything. He sustains everything. Everything is for him. He is the ultimate. He's why the answer to the first question in the Westminster Catechism is, uh, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. God the Son included. God the Son is why we were created. We were created for Him, for His pleasure, for His glory. So He's creator. He's sustainer. He also is director, letter D. As you're writing that down, I'll just add one to sustainer. Uh, obviously, his submission to the cross was voluntary. The men who arrested him and hit him and spat on him, he created them and he sustained them. The only reason why they, why they could exist to spit on him and hit him is because he continued to maintain their order and their existence. I mean, he says, I could have called legions of angels. Yes, he could have done that. He could have also just forgot that he created them. Boom! gone. But he sustained them because he was submitting himself to these for the salvation of God's elect. So I say director, Hebrews 1, 3a. Speaking of Christ in Hebrews 1, 3, the writer says, 
He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Now, I would translate that more literally as, I mean, upholds is not bad at all, but the word is carry. He carried all things. It's not the same word as upholds in Colossians 1.17. It's not the verb that means to, things to stand together. It's a very simple verb that means to carry something. And when you carry something, what are you usually, what's the whole picture? You're carrying it somewhere. And that's the picture here. He's carrying everything. Where is he carrying everything? To the fulfillment of God's purpose. To the, if you forgive a theological term, to the eschaton, the end, the, the, where everything's going because of God's decreed plan of the ages. He's carrying everything there. He's unfolding all of the developments of history. He's the one who's going to break the scroll in its seven seals that wrap up history in the seven years of the tribulation because he's the Lord of history. He's the master of history. It's his story. And he carries it where the Father and the the Son and the Holy Spirit have decreed it's going to go. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the start of the story and he's the end of the story. And he's carrying everything towards there, towards where God has planned for it to be. So we see this this is his lordship over providence, over the rise and fall of nations and rulers and individual businesses and lemonade stands. I mean, he, he is the Lord and director of all things towards the end that God has planned for all things. So, these are his uh, goings forth of ancient times. We've looked at his, his activities, if you will, in eternity, the realities of his life in eternity. We've looked at his doings in, from ancient times. Now let's look at more recent past times, and by that I mean his incarnate career. And we're just going to look at that very briefly in three points. His incarnate career. That's what I mean by his more recent past times. God the Son, Jesus Christ, made flesh and dwelt among us and lived, letter A, a perfect life. He lived a perfect life. So many verses say this. I'll just bring you a few. Matthew 5.17. It's a verse that's been much... uh, argued over and studied, but I think the point of it is just like it sounds. Jesus says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And I'm sure you remember perfectly the, preach, the sermon I preached on that years ago. But uh, just in case you need a little freshening or a new, uh, what this verse means is it means exactly what it says. He came to fulfill it. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He fulfills the predictions and patterns of the prophets, but he also fulfills the righteousness of the law. He comes and fulfills these things. What a thing to say. What is he saying? He's saying that in me is the quintessence of the entire Old Testament. It all finds its fulfillment in me. All of the morality, all of the right, all of the wisdom all of the predictions, all of the promises, they find their fulfillment in me. What a thing for a mere man to say. Yes, indeed, except he wasn't a mere man. He was God incarnate. Luke 23, verse 4. Why do I say this? Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. You say, well, yes, Pilate widely recognized authority on morality, (laughs) Well, no, not at all. 
But the point is, even corrupt, rotten Pilate couldn't find anything on him. Even he was bothered by the Jews bringing this man to him. Now, this is a terrible thing to have to say about somebody that you're about to crucify. But he does that because he's so corrupt. I find no guilt in this man. You brought him to me to crucify, but I can't find any reason to. He still does it anyway. But he finds nothing. Even he has to say. And John 8.29, Jesus says this. He says, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Now, there's only two kinds of persons who would say that. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Somebody who's dishonest or crazy, or Jesus. Anybody else saying this is lying or nuts. But Jesus says it, and he's neither. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And here's one, John John 8.46. Which of you convicts me of sin? He says, to his enemies. Now, imagine uh, a political candidate saying that to his opponents. Well, every hand in the room would shoot up. But Jesus says to them, which one of you convicts me of sin? And they have to make stuff up to get him convicted. They didn't have anything on him. And it says something about his self-consciousness that he could say this without embarrassment or, or seeming silly or being made a fool of, because he knows they don't have anything on him. And they could have watched him 24 hours a day, everywhere he goes, everything he did, and they still wouldn't have had anything on him. The only human being who has ever lived who could say that truthfully. He says, if I speak truth, why do you not believe me? That's a good question for today, isn't it? That's a good question for every one of us, every man, woman, and child. If I speak the truth, why don't you believe me? John, who's John? We just talked about him. What did we see him doing at the Last Supper? Leaning on Jesus' breast. Why was he leaning on Jesus' breast? Because Jesus loved him. He was, he was an intimate friend of Jesus. What does John call him in 1 John 2.1? He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, a pretty good guy, all things told. Is that what he says to him? Jesus Christ, who tried his best. Is that what John says? What does he say? Jesus Christ, the righteous. He was with him 24-7 every day in the worst situations imaginable. And he still calls him the righteous. Why? Because he was righteous. First Peter 2.22, another one of Jesus Inner three, one who himself gets nailed for lots of stupid things, Peter. But what does, Jesus, what does Peter say about Jesus? Another person with him day and night in the worst of situations. He says, who did no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Let me slow up a little bit. Who did no sin, he says of Jesus. Second Corinthians 5.21, Paul, who used to hate Jesus, says that God the Father made him who knew no sin. Now, does he mean Jesus wouldn't have known sin if he saw it? Not at all. What does he mean when he says Jesus knew no sin? He never experienced any. It never touched him. It never never had a hold on him. He never sinned. 
Now let me give you a little theological phrase that is a very good phrase, a very important phrase. The active obedience of Christ. That's what this is. This is the active obedience of Christ. What does that mean? Christ's obedience to the law of God. Christ's fulfilling of the law of God. Christ acting to do what God the Father called him to do. That's the active obedience to Christ, of Christ. You say, well, I don't immediately see why that's so important. I'll, I'll tell you why it's so important. This is the obedience that when a sinner repents and believes savingly in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the obedience that is imputed to him. And Paul speaks of the imputed obedience of Christ. Now, you want to stand before God and not end up in hell, you'd better be righteous. How righteous? You'd better be as righteous as Jesus Christ. You say, well, then I'm doomed. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Yes, I am. Unless we go in with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And there is a way to do that. Only one way. That is to repent and believe in Jesus. And God, by grace, then imputes the active obedience of Christ to that person. And so that's when people say, well, what does justification mean? And the answer is, it means just as if I'd never sinned. That's not untrue, but it's not true enough. Justification doesn't mean just as if I never sinned. What does it mean? It means just as if I'd obeyed every law of God perfectly. How? Because it's the act of obedience of Christ. One of the greatest men, uh, great men of the faith, J. Gresham Machen, one of my heroes, last words he telegraphed to another theologian, John Murray. He telegraphed, thank God for the act of obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Amen. And something to hear. Machen had served God and suffered for God so faithfully in his life. But as he neared eternity, was he looking to that for his hope? Was he hoping that his service of Christ was going to get him in and stand him well with God? Thank God for the act of obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Amen. So his perfect life, letter B, his substitutionary death. We just studied that some last week. I'll say briefly, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, listen, the righteous for the unrighteous so that he might bring you to God. So this is Christ. God made him sin who knew no sin. My sin, as one of God's elect, my sin was laid on Christ. And he bore that before the Father and made full atonement for me and every other such person by taking our sin on his sinless self. God might judge him for my sin and impute his righteousness to me and to every man, woman, and child who believes in him. Now, this is what's called the passive obedience of Christ. As Christ's active obedience is his doing all of the laws and commands that God gave him, his passive obedience is his allowing himself to suffer 
all that he needed to suffer for the salvation of the elect. That's his passive obedience. Submitting himself to the will of God in going to the cross and bearing sins. That's his passive obedience. So, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his bodily resurrection, all of these are past deeds of Christ. Matthew 20, 19 we just studied the Jewish leaders will deliver him over to the Gentiles to mock and flog and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. And then Acts 2.32, Peter preaches indeed that this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. So Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, and then he showed it. Then he proved it by rising from the dead. Uh, he said he, raised, he would raise himself from the dead, John 2, and he said the Father would raise him from the dead. So we Christians, we don't admire a dead philosopher. We don't follow a dead hero. We worship a living Savior, one who died for us and one who was raised for our justification. And because he's alive, because he's alive, he's not just to be admired. He's not just to be quoted. He's to be worshipped, loved, believed in, and followed unto death. He rose from the dead, having given himself a sacrifice to save sinners. And so uh, we will look at what he's done since and is doing now in the next sermon in this series, Lord willing. But this is everything that he is doing now and everything he will do is based on what we studied in this study of, of the Word of God. So indeed, as Christ, uh, as, as Scripture says, Christ going forth, his goings forth are from everlasting, from ancient days. The eternal Son of God, begotten before the worlds, the only begotten of the Father, creator, sustainer, director, Lord. To die, he died and rose again to save elect sinners. And now, everyone who draws near to God through him is saved to the uttermost by this one who is God and man. And my question to you simply is, do you know this Jesus? And if you say you know this Jesus, are you content just to know a little of him? Or are you eager to learn more and more of him? Uh, the only sign of life and a healthy life is a yes to both of those questions. I do know him, and I want to know him better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these truths in your word. Uh, glorious and wondrous that they are, mind-boggling, heart-stirring, heart-warming. And thank you for this portrait of the Lord Jesus, the sinner's one and only safe haven, uh, harbor and haven, the only person to whom a sinner can flee and be saved from the wrath of God, saved by God from the wrath of God. So not knowing the hearts of anyone here, but uh, uh, knowing the heart of man, I pray for all here that those who've come in knowing they don't know you will find them, their eyes directed to Christ and that they will see how much they need him and that they'll be enabled by you to flee to him for salvation and life. And for those who think they're Christians but have no real love for Jesus and no real desire to learn of him, will see their need to come to a real faith in the real Christ and to have a real life that grows and bears fruit to your glory. And for all who do know the Lord Jesus, just Father, there will never be a point where we can't pray with all our hearts 
deepen our love for Jesus, deepen our faith in Him, deepen our reverence for Him, expand and deepen our knowledge of Him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.